Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. It's Charles Marshall and on the Neil Garfield Show, which was formerly known when I was on as the West Coast foreclosure version of the Neil Garfield Show. And yes, on this show, I do still talk about West Coast foreclosure topics from time to time, and that will be part of what we discuss today. And today is February 21st. 2019, and we're going to be talking today about race judicata revisited, and there's a big intersection with that issue, and the uh, the decisions borrowers, homeowners have in deciding whether to represent themselves in a foreclosure situation or whether to hire an attorney. And I'm going to look at one piece to that and and how that plays out in multiple types of courtrooms. We're going to look at civil litigation, then bankruptcy, and even touch on unlawful detainer. So a lot of what I'll be discussing is legal procedure. Now, as always, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. And Neil, thanks you very much for any amount you're able to donate. And it is appreciated. And you can donate directly on the blog by selecting the Donate button at the Living Lies blog by going to www dot living lies dot wordpress dot com so when we look at these issues of race judicata uh, the big kind of framework that we all start with you've got claim preclusion you've got issue preclusion race judicata really relates to claim preclusion Principally, and that's when the whole case is shut down because of what happened previously. Now, the way I'll be discussing this topic today, it is going to relate principally to non-judicial foreclosures and situations, as in California typically, where you have a plaintiff and that plaintiff is bringing a lawsuit. And the subject of the lawsuit, and sometimes 
oftentimes, frankly, some of the players at least are the same, meaning the institutional defendants on the other side. Some of the causes of action are the same, meaning something like quiet title or slander of title might be pled depending on circumstances. And I will say parenthetically now, as I do during all broadcasts, everything that I present today, none of this is legal advice. This is an informational show only. And that's not to take away from the importance of this show. I think this show does a great service. And I know Neil is of that mind, too. We're both very proud of what we're able to put out on air and the information we're able to provide. We're basically a source of information. We're not acting in any legal advice capacity. We're not acting as attorneys when we present information on this show. So everything you hear on this show, everything that comes from Neil's blog connected with this show, you should vet all of it through legal channels, you should consult with individual attorneys to expand on and clarify and refine whatever you hear on this program. So back to the meat of today, the race judicata issue. Now, one of the disturbing things about race judicata is that on paper, it's a very strict standard. On paper, and this would be true jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Now, of course, getting back to first principles of law, and we always have to thread those in here because they're so important to discussions of any legal topic, threading through first principles, race judicata has a statutory framework at both a federal level and then all the various states and the state statutory framework. It, of course, has a common law uh, presence, and it comes from common law. It's a principle that's hundreds of years old for the simple reason that it's been a legal issue for hundreds of years. It's arguably been an, a legal issue since we crawled out of caves uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago that you bring a legal proceeding, well, if you brought a legal proceeding on the same matter already and it was already decided by a court of competent jurisdiction, why are you allowed to bring that same proceeding again? And, of course, that's a legitimate question. However, when I say race judicata is typically, here we're talking outside of foreclosure cases, typically interpreted in a narrow way, what that means is you're supposed to have on paper with the application of the race judicata principle. You're supposed to have an identity of parties, meaning the plaintiffs and the defendants are exactly the same in the new proceeding as they were in the former one. You're supposed to have an identity of claims, meaning not the general legal claim per se, but the specific causes of action within your lawsuit. So if you had five causes of action in the original lawsuit and you're kind of suing over something with some of the same parties, 
But in this new case, you have 10 causes of action under strict race judicata analysis. That is not uh, subject to race judicata for the simple reason that you don't have an identity of parties and you don't have an identity of causes of action within your general lawsuit claim, so to speak. However, race judicata in the foreclosure context, particularly I'm speaking here about non-judicial foreclosure cases where borrowers are bringing them as plaintiffs. In those cases, typically what happens with race judicata is that the court will interpret it very broadly. That is to say, if any of the parties are the same as they were previously, if there's any kind of lineup of causes of action even if it just relates to foreclosure, you could have completely different causes of action. I mean, if, you, if, if you're going to make, uh, let's say you're going to the, the actual physical offices of the sales trustee bringing your property to sale and you have a letter that you're personally delivering as a demand. Well, if you slip and fall uh, on the actual property and the, uh, the sales trustee owns the property and you slip and fall and, and, and uh, severely hurt your back, uh, you might, of course, have a slip and fall personal injury claim against that sales trustee. There's no judge on the planet that would say just because you sued that same sales trustee in a previous lawsuit about foreclosure that now when you sue them about a slip and fall case, that should have raised judicata applied. No, no, no judge will say that. The judge will say, yes, it's the same party, it's the sales trustee and foreclosure case one, it's the same sales trustee and foreclosure and uh, slip and fall case two, but clearly those are about different subject matters. So there it's very easy to say race judicata doesn't apply. But if the first case involved uh, for, foreclosure round one or foreclosure round two, and there's a lot of stuff that happens in foreclosure round three or four that really wasn't covered in the first two lawsuits and that really represent new activity on the part of the foreclosing sales trustee and the foreclosing servicer, well, arguably you have a new case particularly if the causes of action are substantially different. But instead, courts will, again, particularly in California, they will liberally construe, they will construe in a very broad, expansive way, the way the race judicata doctrine works, such that your case gets shut down. Now, how does this relate to the whole issue of whether you are in pro per or whether you've hired an attorney? It relates very much in, in, in this particular way, which is, again, part of the subject of, of the broadcast today. <clears throat> when you're in pro per, if you get a sanctions threat from the other side. Now, in California, this takes the form of a specific civil code that allows the defendant in a case to bring 
a basically meritless claim sanctions motion and a very common, and this is no surprise when you think of how you would bring a meritless claim defense and threaten the plaintiff with a motion for sanctions, naturally race judicata as an argument would be a very principal argument that you would make when you're making a sanctions motion, saying that the other side is filing a frivolous lawsuit. If that lawsuit is really subject to race judicata, then there's a good chance you'll prevail. Now, the problem, again, for foreclosure litigants with the way judges, particularly in California and courts in California, in these borrower foreclosure lawsuits, with the way they so expansively interpret race judicata, it becomes a problem for the litigant uh, because you can get this motion and the state realm is going to be under state code in federal court it's going to be under a certain federal code, but they all have the same kind of contours. You, you, when you're the de- defendant and you're bringing the sanctions motion, you're seeking to demand money for the frivolous lawsuit being filed. You're seeking a bar, a dismissal with prejudice, and even sometimes there can be a bar related to future filings. So that, that would be highly unusual. You do see that in bankruptcy procedure, and I'll go over that in a bit. And the big issue here with whether you have an attorney or not related to a race judicata issue is if you have an attorney, then the way the system works, both at the federal level and the state level, is the courts can sanction that attorney monetarily and sometimes even restrictions to practice related to the court itself. Now, that's highly unusual, but monetary sanctions are not that unusual. And yet, if you're in pro per, then you normally won't be hit with monetary sanctions. You will still be hit sometimes with sanctions motions, even if you're in pro per. And the defense will sometimes use this as a cudgel is really a legal maneuver to undermine your case. It's, of course, I think one could accurately call this an irony of legal procedure because the whole basis of a a sanctions motion from the defense side is, well, you're misusing the rules, plaintiff, even if you're in pro per. You're misusing the rules and we're not going to let you do that. At least we're going to try to keep you from doing that, and we're going to bring this sanctions motion. And yet the bringing of the sanctions motion itself is arguably, in the context of these cases, an abuse of legal procedure. I say that for the simple reason that race judicata being so expansively interpreted In a number of cases, you can have really brand new facts and brand new behavior on the part of the servicer and the sales trustee that don't even relate to the stuff that happened five, six years ago that was already litigated, let's say, in a former case where there was a dismissal with prejudice against the the former litigant. And now, okay, the borrower may be the same, 
but there could be brand new servicers, and there often are new sales trustees. There are often new assignments that, that have happened. There are often new disputes around loan mods that may or may not have been ratified, payments that may or may not have gone forward, payments that ended up in suspense accounts and were never properly accounted for. Really, this is the type of thing that would create a new problem. And there, there is a component of foreclosure litigation that really makes it susceptible to future litigation. And everyone on this call, I think, will know what I'm talking about. What am I talking about? Well, in a lot of situations where you litigate, of course, the whole principle is, look, you've, you've got your day in court, you had your day in court. It's a reasonable goal of courts. It's a reasonable goal of legislatures. It's a reasonable goal, even in theory, for the law to prioritize one and done, to prioritize the principle that, look, yes, we have a court system available so that people can resolve their differences civilly and without resort to violence and without resort to illegal machinations. And we have a legal uniform body of rules to adjudicate disputes. I think from any point of view, this is an excellent framework for solving these kinds of disputes and, and other disputes in society. The problem is that so many other types of disputes between litigants, among litigants, even complex ones, they don't involve and they don't anticipate the litigants continuing to connect with each other. Uh, it's almost like a situation where you might even have divorcing litigants where they're not actually able to get divorced. And so, therefore, you know, there's an ongoing tie. Sometimes you see that with child custody issues. <clears throat> and you, you can see some of the same types of ongoing issues and that type of litigation. But just to close the loop on how that applies in foreclosure, again, in so many litigation situations, the parties will go their own ways after the case is over. And their one and done makes a lot of sense. But that doesn't happen in a lot of foreclosure lawsuits. It doesn't happen, particularly in non-judicial foreclosure lawsuits, where the plaintiff borrower is still in the property, and sometimes they're not even in the property anymore, but they rightly and justifiably see the legal bases for continuing litigation. So they will file and do file new suits, and yet they're stuck with the same servicer. They're stuck with the same sales trustee in many cases, even after previous litigation. And if this servicer and sales trustee are still coming after them years later. They really have no choice uh, but to try to avail themselves of the legal procedure available. And that's the other important issue I wanted to get to today is that the, the procedures, some of them that I'm talking about here, uh, I'm, 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 I'm exhorting, not again by way of legal advice, just by giving information. I'm exhorting borrowers to 
really look at their options and look at the legal procedure available to them. And there, there, there are many sources. I certainly am, as an attorney, skeptical of using the Internet to, get, to, to, to garner and sift through information. On the other hand, I think the Internet can be a useful partial tool, partial only, Certainly, consultations with attorneys after anything you look at online are going to be essential to really know what your legal options are. But again, with this race judicata issue, if you are a litigant, if you're anticipating future litigation, sometimes it makes sense to go pro per if there's likely to be a race judicata issue. On the other hand, some attorneys are willing to handle those cases. It's, it's kind of a case-by-case situation. However, attorneys are more likely to get harassed in a way that makes it difficult to continue with an attorney in some cases where race judicata is going to be brought against you. Basically, if you have a foreclosure case and it goes to a final judgment in any proceeding, there are going to be issues about bringing a, a new lawsuit. Now, those issues are complex. I'm not saying there, there isn't a scenario and there isn't a clear path, but this is an issue that's simply going to have to be addressed in trying to bring uh, future cases when you're in litigation. Now, I want to touch on briefly as well how this plays out in the bankruptcy context and the unlawful detainer context. Now, bankruptcy procedure, you kind of have... A similar situation. If you've had multiple filings, <clears throat> there are specific rules on when, how any new filing will still have uh, an automatic stay associated with it. Practical matter, if you have an attorney bring your case, that attorney again can be harassed not just by the the servicers in the case who are associated with any proof of claim brought by the uh, you know, nominal so-called uh, owner of the debt who would come forward in a bankruptcy, let's say, in a motion for relief from stay, and who would come forward in a given bankruptcy with a proof of claim. The problem for bankruptcy filers is that under the rule, technically, you may be able to file and get an automatic stay. But if you have a significant bankruptcy history, that will often be used against you. And courts will even go after attorneys sometimes associated with those filings. So just to give a brief purview and preview of how some of the basic automatic stay procedure works, because this can really impact whether you go pro per or have an attorney in bankruptcy. There's really no legal or practical issue if you don't have any bankruptcy issue at all. In other words, any bankruptcy court anywhere in the country, you're going to get the benefit of a doubt if you have no bankruptcy history. So if you bring a new filing, and I, I will make one caveat when I say there are no previous filings, I mean, there are all kinds of machinations involved at the bankruptcy level. And again, it's beyond the scope of this show to even get into that. So what, what I'm really saying is when there's a new filing and the property itself has not been the subject of previous filings, let's say that you've owned the property for 10, 20 years 
if during that time, as the owner, you haven't brought a bankruptcy or there hasn't been another bankruptcy associated with the subject property during your ownership period, well, then that's going to be treated as a clean filing. That's going to be treated as a clean filing anywhere, absolutely every jurisdiction, California and otherwise. Now, if you've had one filing and then that filing gets dismissed, if you file another case within a calendar year where that previous case was pending. Now, I'm going to explain how this works because it sounds complicated. It sounds convoluted. It really isn't. I'm going to explain how this works, and then for those who are interested, you, of course, will want to follow up. Even if it's just Internet research initially, you're going to want to talk to an attorney at some point to clarify. Um, But the way the automatic stay rules work here is that you have your second filing. Let's say you file, you know, bankruptcy one, just to make it analytically simple. You file bankruptcy one January 1st. Well, you can't, you don't file bankruptcy on a non-court day. You, you actually can in some cases, but we won't get into that. So you file bankruptcy one on January 2nd. And let's say you are in procure. And then that gets, ultimately dismissed because you don't file your schedules that are required. So let's say it's dismissed on January 20th of the same year, talking 2018. Again, this is just a hypothetical. Now, when you file your next case, your first one having been dismissed only 20. Let's say you file BK2 on February 2nd, you know, literally a month later. Now, what happens there is you only get a stay for 30 days. So as a practical matter, as a sales trustee, as a service, are going to take your property to sale one day or even one week or one month past the 30-day period? Probably not. I'm not saying it hasn't happened or couldn't happen. It could happen, but typically – With that second bankruptcy, even though you technically you only get a 30-day stay, most of the servicers and sales trustees will will treat that as an ongoing stay. And, you know, they'll still bring a motion for relief from stay if they want to kick you out of your bankruptcy or get your property out of your bankruptcy. Now, let's say you do a third bankruptcy. Let's say bankruptcy two drops off after, again, another 25-day period. So February being a short month, it drops off February 25th. Now you file your third bankruptcy, April 1st, 2018. Well, guess what? You don't get a stay with that. Now, does that mean you don't file? Well, it can be considered fraudulent to file that bankruptcy because you don't have a stay. And there is a presumption related to that So there are some real problems with trying to file a third bankruptcy within a calendar year. Now, what what is meant by a calendar year is that previous bankruptcy was pending. Now, that generally means that it not necessarily closed yet, but that it was dismissed. Pending is normally going to mean that it, it it was not yet dismissed. So when you do your one-year look back, you have to take that into account. 
now, on the unlawful detainer front, really got limited time to discuss that. Um, there's a bunch of procedure, you know, that you can do either pro per pro per or hiring an attorney. But again, you can be facing the same dilemma. You can have in your unlawful detainer proceeding, you can be using basic procedures and the judge can consider those procedures illegitimate, even though they're available to be used. And the defendants and sometimes the judge will go after your attorney if you're in an unlawful detainer, sometimes with sanction motions. Yet those are less likely to be used against you as an individual. So to sum up, Sometimes the decision on pro per versus hiring attorney can come down to how likely will you have sanctions motions and will that be a problem? It will always be a bigger problem for your attorney than for you. So that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Neil will be back next week and I will be back soon. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.